Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Well, I want to thank Ryan and Caroline for leading us so well this morning. If you haven't heard the news, Grant uh, is at home today because last night Carly was having contractions. And, uh, but then it slowed down, and as of this morning, nothing. So some of you ladies know how that goes, right? Uh, and so anyway, it's good for, for them to have a day off and, and to be together because the Lord's timing, right? It could be at any moment. So we're excited for them. Keep them in your prayers. Well, how many of you uh, this morning would be offended if I called you a priest? If you're uh, what we call a recovering Catholic, uh, you probably cringed as I, as I said that. But regardless of our feelings, is that, is that a biblical concept, us as priests? Would it help if I used a different word? What if I called you a a minister, would that be better? Those of you who are, have a background in a mainline denomination, that also may have creeped you out just a little bit. Why is that? Well, for the most part, it's because so many of us have been conditioned to view church life as neatly divided between what the world calls clergy and laity. In other words, the professionals and the rest of us. That's how we've been conditioned. But what if the New Testament taught something else? How do we make sense of 1 Peter 2.5 that says this, You also, speaking to believers, as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Hmm. What about later on, 1 Peter 2.9 and 10, You are a chosen race, and a holy priesthood, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And what about Revelation 1, chapters 5 and 6, speaking of Jesus, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood, he has made us, believers, to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. I could go on, but you get the point. According to Scripture, those of us who have trusted in Christ alone belong to a sacred priesthood of believers. And that includes the pre- from, the, from the preacher in the pulpit to the least involved person in this congregation. We all possess the things that, that priests normally have as believers in Christ. We all have equal access to God's throne of grace, every one of us. We all have the ability to intercede for one another in prayer. We all have the privilege of offering up spiritual sacrifices of worship that are holy and pleasing to God. So here we are, all these believers at Oak Hill, and biblically we are a body of priests or ministers, if that makes you feel better about it. And we're all called by God to function as such, as priests, as ministers, in service to one another. This is, in fact, one of the things that the reformers fought for back in the 16th century. They battled and battled the Roman Catholic system to explain what we call today the priesthood of all believers. They fought the Roman Catholic view that there was this exclusive hierarchy of men who alone had access to God through the sacraments. And they pointed to the word of God and said, no, that's not true. See what God says in the New Testament. In his treatise, The Freedom of a Christian, Martin Luther declared this, and this is a powerful statement, so look carefully. He says, not only are we, believers, the freest of all men, but also priests forever. Look what he says about that. A dignity far higher than kingship, because by that priesthood, we are worthy, worthy to appear before God, to pray for others and to teach one another mutually the things which are of God, for these are the duties of a priest." He finishes, he says, Christ has obtained for us this favor if we believe in him, that just as we are his brethren and co-heirs, so we should also be his fellow priests with him and venture with confidence through the spirit of faith to come into the presence of God and cry, Abba, Father, and to do all the things which we see done and figured in the visible office of the priesthood. Friends, this is a great privilege that we have been given in Christ and under the new covenant. 
By the way, this truth doesn't negate the fact that we still have a need for specific callings and gifts that God has given to the church. Pastors, teachers, evangelists, missionaries, church planners, and more. Those are all given to the local church for the building up of the body. But the truth remains that all of us, all believers, have a priestly or ministerial duty before the Lord and to one another. And so the only question that remains is, are you on duty? How are you living out that sacred calling? Well, I'm excited to see what Paul has to say about this today. So grab your Bibles. If you haven't turned there already, let's go to Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15, I want you to find verse 13. That's where we ended last week. And by the way, together... We have reached a milestone in the study of Romans. You may not have even noticed it, but we reached a milestone together last Sunday. We finished, really, the corpus of Paul's doctrinal instructions to the church. And so, I love this, the way he finished off his final instructions to these first century believers in Rome, what did he talk about? Loving one another in the body and unity. He talked about these two groups in the church, Jew and Gentile, who were naturally hostile towards one another, but he made this incredible statement about how from these two groups, he would create one shepherd, one flock, one people who with one voice would glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Really beautiful stuff to end on. And so now that the doctrinal instruction is complete, that means beginning today and running through October and November, we're going to be looking at Paul's personal comments as he closes the letter, really what you would call his postscript, so to speak, his postscript to this amazing letter. And really, the best way I've heard it described is, is this. We've been listening now for, I don't know how long, almost three years maybe in Romans. We've been listening to Paul, the great professor, instruct us. And, and after this long session, the bell has rung and class is dismissed. And now we get to go up and meet the professor personally and hear from his heart. And that's what we do in this final chapter and a half. Now, as I describe that, there's a temptation on our part to say, oh, all the good doctrine is over so I can check out now. Please don't get complacent. We have 47 more verses to go, a full chapter and a half. And those 47 verses are chock full of really practical instruction for church-loving Christ followers. So this is going to be a great. The next couple of months is going to be fantastic. All right, look at verse 13. Now, we're not going to spend any time here. This really is the transition between what we learned last Sunday about the unity of the church and where Paul is headed today in his personal comments. Verse 13 is Paul stopping in the middle of his letter and, and doing intercessory prayer for the believers in Rome. He says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing or trusting so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Man, what a great prayer, right? That is something literally you could tape to your mirror and pray each and every day for yourself and for your friends. Now let's turn our attention to our passage for today. Look at verse 14. We're going to read down through verse 21. And concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to admonish one another. But I've written very boldly to you on some points so as to remind you again because of the grace that was given me from God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as what? A priest, the gospel of God, so that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Verse 17, therefore in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed, in the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and round about as far as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And thus I aspired to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation, but as it is written, they who had no news of him shall see. And they who have not heard shall understand. So here's where we're headed this morning. As we look at Paul's final thoughts and comments for these believers in Rome, what I want to do is unpack his ministry philosophy here. And you say, well, why does that matter to me? Well, I said it earlier. Every one of you in this room is a minister. So as we see the example of how Paul ministered, 
This is a great example for us. This is something that we can pattern our lives after. So let's look back at the passage. We're going to skip past verse 14 for the moment. Okay, that verse is Paul's final direct comment to the believers in Rome. We'll come back to it at the end. For now, let's look at the scope of Paul's ministry as he describes it in this passage. I have six things to talk about today. Six things in here that describe Paul's ministry philosophy. Some of them are really obvious and really simple. Some are more complex. I'm going to require a little bit of of hashing out. But here we go. Number one, Paul identifies his specific calling as being the apostle to the Gentile world. He's the apostle to the Gentile world. You see this in verse 16, where he calls himself a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. And of course, this isn't the only time in the New Testament where he specifically refers to himself in this way. He actually introduced himself way back in Romans 11 in this very same way as the apostle to the Gentiles. But the most beautiful statement that he makes about this comes from Ephesians chapter 3, where he begins by saying that he is a prisoner a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of the Gentiles. I'm locked up for you, he says. And he he says, I'm the recipient of a mysterious revelation from God. Here's what it says. This mystery, he writes, is that the Gentiles are now fellow heirs and members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That is an amazing thing. Not just Jews, but our Gentiles have been grafted in We're now co-heirs of this gospel, he says, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. And then listen to what he says. To me, I am the very least of all the saints. To me, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. How many of you guys are Gentiles in here? How many of you guys are, are grateful that Paul got this calling? Amen and amen, right? And this directly relates to us. And so by the time that Paul's writing this letter to the church in Rome, which he wrote, by the way, from the city of Corinth around the year 57, Paul had already spent 13 years on the road. 13 years traveling all over the Mediterranean world, spreading the good news of the gospel. Notice in verse 19 in our text that he describes the breadth of this mission to the Gentiles. From Jerusalem all the way to what? Nobody can ever read that word. Illyricum. Okay, now, those of you who are veterans at Oak Hill, what do you think that means? A map. Okay, if you're new to Oak Hill, you just got to know this. I'm obsessed with maps. Okay, I get giddy. I mean, I'm sitting at home last night studying maps, and I'm so excited because it really does, it brings the, the, the context of, of the passage off the page, right? Helps us to see what's going on. So I got a great map. How exciting is this? Okay, so, I mean, are you juiced up? Come on, get stoked. Here we go. So, a couple things to notice on the map. The blue dot is always what? Jerusalem. Just know that. It's always going to be a blue dot. The green dot is Antioch, and that's where Paul's missionary journeys were launched out of, to the north of Jerusalem in this area we call Syria. From Antioch is where the journeys took place. Now, the red on the far left side is, is Rome. This is eventually where he wants to get to, right? This is where he's writing to in this letter. The yellow dots just are some, some of the churches that Paul has planted. The one, i got to turn around here. Uh, to the far right here is Ephesus on the coast of Asia Minor. We go up north to Philippi and then down south to Corinth. Now, you see the word there, Illyricum, Right? That's where he's talking about. It's to the northwest of Macedonia. This is where Paul says, I've, essentially, the gospel message has gotten to this place. Now, Illyricum is today what we call the region of the Balkans, the Balkan states, okay? It makes up the nations of Albania and Serbia. You also see to the north of that a term Dalmatia. And Dalmatia is important because and today that's Croatia and that's Bosnia. But we know from 2 Timothy 4.10, Paul says, I've sent Titus to Dalmatia. So we know in Paul's day in the first century, look how close the gospel was already, about 600 miles away from the city of Rome. So look at this oval shape now. When we talk about evangelism today, we talk about, well, I'd really like to reach my neighborhood <laughs> or my town but look at the fruitfulness of Paul's ministry. 
the entire Mediterranean world. Man, this guy was a powerhouse, wasn't he? God worked mightily through him. That is a crazy map when you look at how much land he covered. So that's what we're talking about in terms of this is the scope and the breadth of Paul's ministry that he's talking about in 13 years, by the way. Amazing. Okay, so that brings us to number two. Second thing, first an apostle of the Gentile world. Second, Paul's calling specifically was as a foundation builder. Look at verse 20. He says, and thus I aspired, or it was my goal, he says, to preach the gospel not where Christ was already named, okay, not where the name of Christ was already known, so that I wouldn't build on another man's work or the foundation that he had laid, but as it is written, this is from Isaiah 52, they who had no news of him, they'll see, and those who hadn't heard of him, they will understand. So when we think about Paul and what he was, our minds tend to think right away missionary. And that's true, but it doesn't go far enough. Really at the core, Paul was a church planter. He was a church planter. Maybe more than anyone else who's ever walked the planet, Paul really understood what Jesus meant when he delivered what we call today the Great Commission. Not just to see people evangelized, not just to see them come to saving faith, but taking the very next step as well, actually making disciples of all nations by what? What did Jesus say? By teaching them all that I have commanded. And so Paul knew that once people placed their trust in Christ and in the gospel message, they needed to grow. And in order to grow, they needed a church community to operate within. They needed to be taught. They needed to be discipled. And so Paul's calling was to go to these places where the name of Christ wasn't yet known, where no foundation had been established, and preach the truth. And by doing that, laying this foundation for local churches to be planted. Local churches in strategic locations that would then serve as outposts for the gospel to go out from there. Paul was very strategic in the way that he thought. It's been described like this, and I think this is sort of a beautiful picture. Paul, Paul is like the watchman who goes out into this dark world, and he begins to set down lanterns in various places in this dark Gentile world so that these lights begin to glow, and then eventually that light spread all over the world. It's a really a beautiful picture. That was Paul's mission. But once he did that, once he planted a church, what would he do? He would move on. He was a foundation builder. What does that mean? Well, he saw himself as a pioneer, not really a local pastor who would stay in one location for a long period of time. His calling was to plant new churches, move on, and then ask other men who were gifted to shepherd and pastor and teach to come into those locations and become local shepherds. Men like Timothy, right? Men like Titus and many others who could establish elders and teach sound doctrine and rebuke and correct wherever necessary. And for, for heaven's sake to protect these new believers from false teachers and overall shepherding care for these local churches. By the way, that's all still going on today, isn't it? You're sitting in a church that one day was a church plant. And all of those things had to happen for God to work in us and through us to to produce here what you see today. This is the beauty of God's design for the church, by the way. Different gifts, different roles. Paul is the church planner, yeah, doing missionary work, but more than that, evangelizing, yeah, but also teaching. Church planning, pastoring, and teaching, all of those roles are important in the building of God's kingdom, amen? So that's number two. Number three was the fact that Paul's saving mission of the Gentiles came about through two specific instruments. He says, word and deed. Word and deed. Look at verse 18. He says, For I will not presume or dare to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience, catch that word, obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed in the power of miraculous signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit. So what does this tell us? Well, it tells us that in the big picture that Paul's ministry among the Gentiles bore the evidence of God's amazing blessing and power. Blessing and power. That God was working through Paul in various miraculous ways. More on that in a second. But first, I want you to see those two tools that he mentions here. Word and deed. Word indeed. And over the past 2,000 years, that tr truth has not changed. This is how God saves people. This is how God transforms them into obedient followers, by word and by deed. 
By word, what does that mean? The verbal ministry of speaking the gospel, of sharing the gospel, of teaching the gospel, of preaching the gospel. Paul says in verse 20, this is exactly what he aspired to do or aimed to do, to preach the gospel, to speak to, verse 21, those who hadn't yet heard the name of Jesus. That's what he wanted to do. That was the the passion of Paul's heart that drove him on in very, very difficult circumstances. And this is in keeping with what Paul said famously in Romans 10, 17. Faith comes from what? Hearing and hearing by what? The word of Christ. So first of all, by word. And the deeds then play a supporting role to the word. That's important to know that. They have value only as they confirm the word. The deeds by themselves are not enough, right? And sometimes we get confused about evangelism. We think if I just, if I just be a Christian in front of people, folks are going to get saved. And, and God can do that, but we got to speak, right? At some point, we got to, we got to have the courage and the, the, the power of the Spirit to come out and actually verbalize, first by word and then by deed. That's the way it's explained in Acts 14. Paul and Barnabas are in Iconium, and it says they spent a long time there speaking boldly, speaking boldly, relying upon the Lord, it says, who is testifying to the word of his grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. So they came out, they spoke boldly, and in the power of the Spirit, God gave them these deeds. So that's the purpose and the function of this work of their hands, these deeds, to bear witness to what Luke calls the word of God's grace. Okay, got to make sure we understand this. First words and then deeds in a supporting role. Now, what are these deeds? What are these deeds? Well, I don't want to get too much in the weeds on this because this could be a whole sermon series by itself. It's not the big idea of today's passage, but when you see the term signs and wonders, it raises some questions, right? What exactly are we talking about here? And so quite simply, let's not beat around the bush. What Paul's talking about is miracles, bonafide miracles, no question about it. The term signs there refers to what the miracle points to, the spiritual significance of the miracle. And by wonders, it refers to the miraculous character of what's being done and the reaction of people as they see it. They're in wonder. The sign points to the significance, and the wonder is, wow, God is at work. This is a bona fide miracle. Now, should we be surprised that real miracles are happening in the first century in Paul's day? Absolutely not. Why? Because the gospel is going into this dark land, into these pagan lands, this pagan world where visible signs were used to validate the truth and the authenticity of the the gospel message. We would fully expect that to be happening. In fact, that's consistent with the purpose of miracles throughout the scriptures, including the Old Testament. When the message is going forth, when God is doing a new work, especially among a new people group, signs were given to validate the prophet or the apostle. Signs and wonders, actual miracles. And so for Paul to be able to claim apostleship in his day and to bring the gospel with real power to the Gentiles, these signs and wonders were necessary. Now, we can talk about some other time about signs and wonders today. That's a whole other thing that we can talk about. And if you're part of Oak Hill, you know our position on that. I'm not going to elaborate today, but if you want to ask a question about what we believe about that today, please find me after the service and we'll chat. For now, let's move on to number four. The fourth thing that we need to know about Paul's ministry is that as an apostle, he carried an interesting obligation. And I don't know if I, this is probably not a very good statement. He is a reminder of doctrine, or I put it, a doctrinal reminder. He's a doctrinal reminder. Look back at the middle of verse 14. He's speaking to the believers in Rome, and he says that they're filled with all knowledge. Now, verse 15 But I have written very boldly to you on some points so as to what? Remind you again. Paul's a reminder. I said it before, but I'll say it again. Paul didn't see the Great Commission as just evangelism. It wasn't get them saved and that's enough. His aim, it says there, was the obedience of the Gentiles. And there's two parts to that obedience. First of all, obedience to the gospel message such that they're saved. But second, Obedience to the commands of Christ, the Great Commission. Teach them everything, right? So that's his aim, and that that term is all of those things. And so Paul was in the business of a number of things, planning churches, 
establishing local pastors and elders, and then as he leaves, this is important, looking back at his church plants, seeing what's going on, having his ear to the ground among travelers that are going throughout the Mediterranean world so that he knows what's happening back there. So as Paul plants the church and leaves, he doesn't forget about his people. Quite to the contrary, he continues to love them and pray for them and be concerned about them. And if if you know anything about the way the New Testament works, he's got this whole network of guys traveling all over the place checking on the people. So he's an apostle, but he maintains the shepherd's heart. So this is what he does. He's in the business of doing this, looking back. And as we see in the New Testament canon, when Paul heard about one of his church plants that was in trouble or was lacking definition in doctrine, what did he do? He wrote him a letter. He wrote him a letter. And he sent emissaries with those letters who could go and straighten things out. So he was a reminder of doctrine. We all need reminders, don't we? This is a true statement. It's just as true today as it was in Paul's day. Without consistency in our spiritual life, we are a forgetful people. We are prone to wander, as the song says, right? And so we have to be constantly reminded of what is true. We're like the, the football team that, that wins a couple of games and gets really arrogant about it. And they start to relax. They start to, to feel comfortable and they're enjoying their success. And they forget all the fundamentals of what got them to that place. And guess what happens next Saturday? They get whooped. And they say, what happened? And it's like, we forgot how to block and tackle. You know, we forgot the fundamentals of the faith. We let those things slip. We're prone to wander, to forget. And so what Paul does is he writes back to his church plants, to these incredibly valued people, he reminds them of the fundamentals. Know these things about Jesus Christ and about the cross. So Paul wrote very boldly, he says, to the believers in Rome about some of the basics of the faith. By the way, Peter had the same philosophy, so we don't want to just highlight Paul. In fact, in, in 2 Peter chapter 1, he writes some very similar thing. Listen, to, listen as I read this and see if you hear the echoes of what Paul writes in Romans 15. Peter says this, Therefore I always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them, he says, and have been established in the truth which is present with you. I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder. Same thing that Paul says. Look, I know you know this, but this is my ministry to constantly remind you. And then he says, look, after my departure, if I've reminded you enough times, you'll be able to call these things to mind. Very, very important. So sometimes I hear people in the church say, go, you know, church life feels a little bit repetitive. Get a little bit tired of the basic formula of, of church life. Or, you know, I get a little bit weary, weary of hearing the, the story of the gospel over and over again. Same themes keep coming back around and around. When's the new stuff coming out? You know the old saying, if it's new, it's probably wrong, right? But this is a ministry of reminding of the basics. So Peter says, you already know these things, but you still need to be reminded. By the way, that's one of the reasons why the Sunday gathering together here is so important, so that we can be reminded. Listen, we are all out there in the world every day being influenced by all kinds of things, right? We're out there in our job, we're out there in our school, we're out there in the public square, and everywhere we turn, we're being drawn away from the truth, right? We're being, we're being coaxed towards unbiblical decision-making and choices and beliefs. We're getting pounded all the time by that. And so when Sunday arrives, what do we do? We come together and we stand side by side in worship and we pray together and we have our minds renewed and our hearts transformed by the Holy Spirit as he takes the word of God and applies it to our heart. Every time you gather here on Sunday morning, this is a supernatural experience. Did you know that? Do you come here on Sunday mornings expecting a supernatural move of the Spirit in your heart and in your mind? To bring new convictions, to grow your conscience, whatever it might be, but expect that God is going to be present here and working through the message and through the worship and through the prayer. We need this thing. Not just Sundays, by the way. Hopefully you're also involved in other connections during the week, whether it's a community group, or it's your ministry team, or maybe just plain fellowshipping over a meal, we need those constant hits 
together to remind each other. There's a great purpose in all this. It's by God's design, not just to keep us busy, because that's sometimes the accusation. Oh, you're just trying to keep us busy. No, we're trying to keep you focused. Focused on the good things, right? Reminded of what is true and what is right. So Paul had a ministry of reminding doctrinally. Let's look at number five. Paul considered that he was rendering a priestly duty to God. In his role as an apostle, he saw himself as a priest before God. Look at verse 16. Paul calls himself a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God. And then making offerings. He says, so that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. What he's doing is bringing up Old Testament imagery here, right? Beautiful imagery. I picture Paul, I don't know about you, I picture him just, this, this guy's a, he's working day and night, right? He is, he is sweating and he is striving because he sees these, these Gentiles, these former pagans who don't have any of the the, the background in, in religion that the Jews had, but these, these former pagans who are now saved. And he wants to be able to offer them up someday as a sacrifice to God. So he's doing everything he can in the power of the Spirit to make them a fragrant offering before God. It takes a lot of work, doesn't it? That doesn't happen you know, quickly or easily to make them fragrant because he wants God to be pleased with both them and he wants God to be pleased with his hard work and labor to bring this offering to God. And I think what Paul's doing here, he's hearkening back to Romans 12.1. Do you remember that, that key verse that really serves as the, the sort of the linchpin of the rest of the book? Present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, Paul said, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Now we see Paul, a guy who's not only presenting himself, but what? He's presenting others as a sacrifice as well. And in fact, Paul used that similar language at the end of Colossians 1 as he described really the ultimate goal of ministry. You ready for this? He says, we proclaim Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that, purpose statement, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose, I labor, Paul says, I labor striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. So Paul saw these two things working together, hard work, sweat, toil, and the power that came from God alone. Those two things are not incompatible, are they? This is the ministry that every one of us here this morning has as a part of this royal priesthood. All of us. This is where, this again, this is where our backgrounds tend to mess with us. We're like, no, 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 wait, you professionals do that. Right? I'm just, I'm a poor peasant sitting in the rows. Uh-uh. You're part of a royal priesthood. Now, your gifting, your calling may be different than someone else, but you're part of this priesthood to teach one another, to build up one another, to correct when necessary, to encourage one another, to admonish our fellow believers so that, so that we might present them to God as a pleasing offering. And I have to tell you, that type of priesthood ministry in the church is one of the most thrilling things you, you can do. I mean, honestly, if you love the Lord Jesus Christ and you get to play a role or have a hand in seeing a believer begin to mature in the Lord, move towards Christ, there is nothing more exciting. It's just, it's just the best thing in the world to watch them reject the things of the world and to begin to see them seeking first the kingdom. And growing in worship and growing in wisdom and growing in prayer and growing in joy and peace and righteousness, it is the most glorious thing I think that God gives us to do down here on earth. To be a priest before God. Last one, sixth and final thing. Paul's happy to boast by God's grace. Verse 17 really is a key in this passage. He's happy to boast of his accomplishments by God's grace. He says, therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. Now, what things is he talking about? Well, he's pointing back to the previous verse, verse 16. He takes pride in his role as an apostle to the Gentiles. He takes pride in the fact that he is working and striving to bring them to God as a sacrificial offering, fragrant before him. And as I say that, maybe that shocks you a little bit. You're like, whoa, whoa, boasting? 
You know, that, that, that throws me for a loop here. We often think, no, 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 no. We, all boasting is out, right? If we've been trained well, right? All boasting is out, especially when it comes to serving the kingdom. We don't boast at all. Back in Romans 3.27, Paul said that faith excludes all boasting, right? We know that God gives grace to the humble, but he's opposed to the proud. So we know these passages, and yet we see the statement in Romans 15, and we see similar statements in other places in the New Testament. I'll give you an example. 2 Corinthians 1.12, Paul says, our boast is this. Uh-oh, here it is. Our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so towards you, Corinthians. The way, we, the way we worked among you. I boast in that, he says. Later in the same chapter, he writes this about the believers in Corinth. He says, on the day of our Lord Jesus, my hope is that you will boast in us as we boast in you. Hmm, same word. So what we see in the, new, in the letters in the New Testament, Paul, Paul is blessed to be able to boast in his church plants, boast in the Christians that he knows are coming to faith, Another example, 2 Thessalonians 1.4. He says, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God. Why? For your steadfastness and faith and all your persecutions and the afflictions that you are enduring. We boast in this. So how do we reconcile this? Well, obviously, what this means is there's, there's two distinct types of boasting. One is bad. The other is good. And I suppose we ought to know the difference if we're going to do this well, right? So here's the scoop. It is always wrong to boast in ourselves. Got it? Because apart from Christ, we can do absolutely bubkis, zilch, nada, whatever word you want to use, right? Nothing. We can't do anything apart from him. But it's always right to boast in the Lord. It's never good to boast in ourselves. It's always right to boast in the Lord. In fact, boasting is the core of our worship. We've already sung two worship songs this morning. We're going to sing three more after the sermon, and that is boasting. We're saying, hey, world, look at how great our God is. Hey, brother and sister, do you see it? Look how great he is. We're boasting in the greatness and the majesty of God as we lift up his name. That is the core of worship. And this is what Paul makes clear in this passage. He does boast in his work. For the kingdom. He boasts in it. But he knows the source of it all, right? In verse 15, he says, his ministry to the Gentiles was a direct result of the grace that was given to him. So he knows he's not responsible for it, but he boasts in it. Verse 18, he writes, I won't presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. So these two things are happening simultaneously here. This is a hard thing to reconcile. Paul's proud of his hard work, proud of his striving for the kingdom, and he acknowledges that all of it comes about because of the grace and the power of God. Those things are happening simultaneously. So he's not out to steal God's glory. He's not taking credit for it. And so as I was, I was processing this this week, I was like, Lord, this is a hard concept. And I think this is the balance that we can strike. I think there's a legitimate sense of satisfaction that we can draw that comes from being faithful to God's calling and realizing that he is using us to accomplish his will. I think it's absolutely okay to have a sense of satisfaction in that. As long as you're pushing away pride in self, and you're remembering that, that first of all, there, you've done nothing to be saved, it's all a work of God, and that you're just a servant of his by his grace, then yeah, go ahead and boast in God. Boast in what he's doing in your life. That's a good thing. And by the way, again, Paul gives us this great example. Again, he's not shy about boasting in how hard he labors. Very funny verse in, in 1 Corinthians 15, for example. He talks about Peter. He talks about James and the other apostles. And then he writes this. Are you ready? I worked harder than any of them. All righty. Okie dokie, Paul. I don't doubt that, do you? He says, I worked harder than any of them. But then he adds the qualifier. Listen, he says, though it was not I, but the grace of God within me. See the balance? Get that right. That's really, really important. And so this is what pastors and teachers and ministry leaders have to learn. 
Listen, a lot of times, you guys in the congregation, you'll come up to me or to one of the elders, you'll say, hey, great job today. Or to Grant, hey, really appreciated the worship. Or Jeff, good sermon. And I've known some people in ministry who immediately get this sort of false humility. They put the frowny face on, right? And they go, no, don't say that. It's all God. But I think it misses the point. Members of a church family ought to feel the freedom and the joy to say, hey, good job. That really blessed me. Does that make sense? I think that's important. When it's obvious that a brother or sister has worked hard for the kingdom, that they've had the right motive, it's okay to say, good job. That was a blessing to me. I try to do this with with all kinds of people in the congregation because I want to encourage them. We all need encouragement. Ministry is hard enough. (laughs) We need to be encouraged. In fact, I I think of in Hebrews 10, it says, stir one another up to love and good deeds. Yeah, encourage each other to those things. It's okay. Besides, I know personally here at Oak Hill, if I ever, if my head ever got too big, I got so many guys here that would knock me right off that platform. And I'm grateful for that. That's really important. You know, a lot of preachers don't have that. They isolate themselves. And they're not accountable to anybody. And that's dangerous. I know, I'm looking around at faces. You guys would knock me down. Praise God. That's good. And besides, whenever I think about that whole concept, I'm a huge fan of Winston Churchill. You know I love history. But one of the funniest one-liners that Winston Churchill ever had this is great. He was once sitting on a platform and he was, he was waiting to speak to this really big crowd. And the person that was running the event turned to him and leaned in and said, doesn't it thrill you, Mr. Churchill, to see all these people? They came just to see you. And Churchill replied, and you, I, I can't do the English accent, but he's so dry. He's so dry. He says, it is quite flattering, but remember, if instead of making a political speech, I was being hanged today, the crowd would be twice as big. So that's a really good thing to remember. So the Lord loves the accomplishments of his children, as any loving parent does. And so there's good reason to take satisfaction for our accomplishments for the kingdom by the grace of God. Celebrate that grace that God is working in you and through you and celebrate our awesome God who encourages us to be excited and yes, proud of what he is accomplishing through us. That's awesome. So, six things about Paul's ministry philosophy. Now, we got to come back real fast. I promise I won't do this too long. I want to finish by coming back to his final words to the believers in Rome. Because we've spent almost three years now, right, specifically focusing on what is Paul saying to these, these Christians in Rome. Look back at verse 14. Concerning you, my brethren, I myself am also convinced, and that word really means I'm satisfied that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able or competent to admonish one another. Now, stop for a second. Based on everything that we've been talking about over the last three Sundays, where Paul is talking about Jews and Gentiles and hostility towards one another and the need to come together as one, does it surprise you that he now leaves the, the believers there with this high compliment? Does it surprise you? Because it seems, based on this, that they were in pretty good spiritual shape. But what was Paul's goal? To present them complete. Pretty good? Pretty good? No, that's not enough. Paul says, no, my aim is the full obedience of the Gentiles, fully sanctified, complete in Christ. Is he content with pretty good? No. So there's more to be said. So he writes, and I'll just paraphrase. He says, look, I know Christians in Rome, I know that I've written to you boldly on some things. I know that this has been a long and really heavy letter. I know that I've used some pretty strong language throughout because I want to make a point and and there's certain things that want to get your attention about, but I know this, all of it is for your good. It's because I love you. It's for your sanctification because like all of us, we need to be reminded of these things. That's basically what he's saying here. And man, nothing could express the heart of a preacher more than that. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many times I have, I've agonized over a sermon during the week. And, I, and I've sweat and I've spent all night looking at every single word. My wife knows. 
And when I complete that process, I go, you know what? I think this is exactly what the Holy Spirit wants me to say to the people. And then I come up here on Sunday and I preach that message and I, I go home and I go, oh, Tan, I think I was a little harsh. Man, I hope I didn't wound some people because I use some pretty strong language. And, and, and I hope by the grace of God that I didn't wound somebody too hard. But the reality of preaching and shepherding is this. We always need to be pressing towards the goal of maturity in Christ, completeness in Christ. So yeah, they're in pretty good spiritual shape. This is what we see here, right? But there's more work to be done. And so look, Paul says three things about him. He says, look, you Roman Christians, you're full of goodness, meaning that their hearts are in the right place. They're rightly motivated about things. He says you're filled with all knowledge. Not that they knew everything, of course, but they'd been taught well in Rome. They had a good handle on the essential doctrine. And finally, he says, those first two things, and this is important, the first two things lead me to say this. You are competent. You're able to counsel one another. You're able to admonish, to teach, instruct, counsel one another. And so this is where we come back full circle to the priesthood of all believers. If you're a Christian... You're a minister. If you're a Christian, you've been given spiritual gifts by the Holy Spirit, and those gifts are to be exercised for the benefit of others in the body. So if you're a Christian, you have a ministry. You're in the ministry. So welcome to the team. There's no paycheck coming. I'm just letting you know. But this is so important to understand. This is the priesthood of all believers. You have a ministry if you're a believer because the Spirit has given you gifts. You're in the ministry. Now, Mr. or Mrs. Minister, Paul would love to, to have you pay close attention to the end of verse 14 because if your heart is rightly motivated and if you have a grasp of essential doctrine, you are competent to instruct and counsel others in the body. Listen, it was never God's intention to say, all right, here's what I want to do. I want to have this local church, and let's say there's two, 300 people in it, but I've got four people who are able to counsel. That is a doomed strategy. That is four exhausted people. Can I get an amen, Adam? Amen. amen. Four exhausted people. This idea of admonishing, instructing, counseling is a one-another function in the local church. All believer priests are to be involved in this. Listen, do you remember the great rebuke that the author of Hebrews gives to the, his audience? You remember it? He says what? By this time, you ought to be teachers. But you're still babies. He says you still need milk, not solid food. This is what he referred to. You ought to be teachers. You ought to be teaching one another. You ought to be encouraging, instructing, admonishing, counseling one another, but you still need milk. So moving from being a child in the faith to maturity means being competent to help others in the body in their time of need. It means being able to speak truth into their lives. It means showing genuine care for them. It means to be able to guide and counsel them with sound advice that's rooted in the scriptures. This is what we need to press on to, folks. That calling belongs to all of us, not just the professionals. In fact, what this means is that all of us play a role in the ultimate goal that Paul describes. We're to assist one another in becoming complete in Christ. Not just leave it up to the professionals and the, and the two or three guys that get paid, but we're all to do this. We're all to play a crucial role in preparing one another to be an acceptable and pleasing offering to God. Are you catching the high calling that you all have? You didn't even realize. You walked in this morning thinking, ah, what's the big deal, Right? No, you're in the ministry and you have an incredibly high calling to operate in this fashion. I, I hope that's exciting and not daunting because remember the power for it all comes from God, right? Not from you. That's the great news. He says, not only have I give you the gifts, but I've, I've equipped you with the power to carry it out. And he says, just be faithful. Praise the Lord, right? So let me close with this. Just like Paul, just some, some concluding personal thoughts. I can't tell you how much this week, for a pastor, how much I identify with this passage. And I know any of you guys here, several of you guys who've been in, in ministry, full-time ministry, how easy it is to identify with this passage because I feel about this congregation at Oak Hill the way Paul felt about his congregations. 
You guys are on my heart constantly. Here at Oak Hill, I'm convinced that you have good hearts, that you're rightly motivated. I see it all the time in the way you fellowship with each other, the way you care for each other, the way you, you greet visitors. There's so many ways I see it. Your hearts are in the right place. I'm convinced of your knowledge of the gospel and theological truth. This church might be small, but it's mighty in its passion for, for theological truth. I'm proud of you for that. I know our elder team believes in the priesthood of all believers, that you're competent to instruct and to counsel one another. You know why? Because the Spirit resides in you. And because of the first two things, your hearts are right and you have a good grasp of essential doctrine. You're competent to counsel. Friends, pastoring here at Oak Hill is far and away the best job in the world. I got to tell you that. It's an answer to many, many years of prayer for Tanny and I. That we prayed that someday we might be a, a part of a church just like this. Part of a leadership team that leads a church that, that believes and does the things that we're doing here at Oak Hill. This is an amazing place. And if you're visiting here this morning, I hope you catch that as you interact with one another. Now having said that, I'm still going to stand in this pulpit every single Sunday for as long as God allows and very boldly remind you of what God has to say. And I hope you're glad about that as well. Like Paul, I want to continue to sweat and to strive to present every single member of Oak Hill complete in Christ. And on the day that God calls me home, I hope to be able to hear that by God's grace, this congregation has become a pleasing and fragrant aroma before God. There's nothing better for a pastor. And finally, because of what he's been able to accomplish in our midst, I want to boast in you guys. I'm going to boast in you because God is at work. I am proud of your faithful service in this church. I am proud of your kindness and care for one another. I'm proud of your thorough knowledge of the gospel. I'm proud of how well you worship. I'm proud of your passion for God's word. I'm proud that so many of you put such a high priority on the local church and body life. There's so many things to boast about. In fact, I have to tell you, this week... Um, this last Tuesday, Todd Smith, who we prayed about, uh, prayed for this morning, the pastor over at Crossroads Church, one of my dearest friends, known him for 30 years. He called me and he said, hey, you got time for coffee? We spent three hours together. And we, man, when pastors get together, it's a crazy time. Because we, we talk about everything about our churches and our congregations. Man, I got to tell you, I was boasting in you guys. It was so sweet. I mean, Crossroads is a great church, but I was just like, Todd, you, you need to come over here someday, and you need to meet these people. I love to boast in you guys. I do it everywhere I possibly can. So man, God is good, isn't he? Aren't you glad that you're in the ministry? <laughs> Not if you're with me. <laughs> Aren't you glad you're in the ministry serving him? Man, we are, we are doing so well by God's grace because he's doing the work in us. But friends, we have so much more work to do together. Let's press on. Amen? Amen. Pray with me.